Coming up on Life is a Festival. The two moods that you find in Gnosticism and in magic, which are kind of early progenitors of New Age, optimism and, and pessimism. The optimistic mood is like we're about to shift to a new age of love, a, a new era, a spiritual era, uh, suffering, misery, vice are going to pass away. But then the age of love doesn't happen. Uh, and then the euphoria, the optimism, the kind of uh, ecstatic optimism shifts into pessimism and paranoia. The age of love hasn't happened because someone or something is blocking it. It's them. There's some kind of hidden group who are stopping the age of love from happening. You know, so it goes from this feeling of we are the empowered agents of the cosmos. Everything is connected. Everything is beautiful. Everything is happening just as it should to the paranoid version of that, which is everything is connected, but it's all controlled by them. My name is Eamon Armstrong, and this is Life is a Festival. This podcast is a celebration of thinkers and leaders who live their lives with the open-hearted, experimental joy of a festival. Each week, we converse in complete openness, in an ongoing quest to find those boundaries in our being and melt them into lofty horizons. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Hello, my fellow travelers. Welcome back to Life is a Festival. Today, we are diving back into the thorny subject of conspirituality, that interesting intersection between the psychedelic wellness community and the sort of paranoid, pessimistic perspective of conspiracies. And I'm so excited to be speaking with philosopher Jules Evans, who I consider the foremost writer on this subject. I've been aware of Jules's work since my first foray into this subject with Eric Davis last year. I read a lot of Jules's work preparing for that interview. So this podcast may pair well with the vaccine for conspirituality that I did a year ago or some of the work on spiritual narcissism that came out after that on the show. Our conversation begins with Jules' many personal psychedelic and spiritual experiences, including traumatic teenage drug use, a near-death experience in his 20s, and a spiritual emergency which occurred after ayahuasca work in his 30s. We start with his biography and then we get into his work on Greek Stoicism. At one point he was a Christian, he's written on ecstatic experiences, and extensively on spiritual emergencies, which I think gives him a lot of credence in criticizing the excesses of the psychedelic community because indeed he is part of it. Then we dive right into this crisis of conspirituality and this issue of spiritual elitism and primitivism and the dark specter of eugenics that has been running through the New Age culture since its inception. Finally, we discuss how can we actually obtain real insight and live our lives like a festival while maintaining good mental hygiene. And to me, this is the most pressing issue for the psychedelic community and the spiritual community writ large at the moment. And just to be clear, it's not all righteousness of the vaccinated. In fact, there's a moment in the podcast where we talk about how shitty it is to be righteous about unvaccinated people. So, Jules is a writer, a speaker, and a practical philosopher who focuses on ideas which help beings suffer less 
and flourish more. He is the author of four books, including Philosophy for Life and Other Dangerous Situations, The Art of Losing Control, which is about ecstatic experiences, Holiday from the Self, which is about ayahuasca tourism, and Breaking Open, Finding a Way Through Spiritual Emergencies. He is currently working on a project on spiritual eugenics. His popular articles about conspirituality on Medium have made him one of the most sought-after critics of today's crisis of meaning. So, my friends, let us together level up our many-mindedness and see how we can approach the world's pernicious problems from all different angles. This is one of the most brilliant people I have talked to on this subject or any, Jules Evans. So welcome to Life is a Festival. Thank you, Eamon. You've been a guest that I've wanted to have on the show for a while. I did an episode called The Vaccine for Conspirituality. Uh-huh. And I was using a ton of your work. And I was like, I just need to, I need to interview this guy. He seems to be the one who's uh-huh. sounding the alarm more than anyone I know. Maybe similar well, to maybe like Jamie Wheel, but really sounding the alarm on this kind of new age conspirituality issue. And it was just very well, inspiring. Yeah. I, I got an email from you. And I think the same day someone mentioned Maya Health to me. So I checked out the website of that, and, and there you were. So obviously in a new age where I went, it's a sign. <laughs> the synchronicity is that I'm actually working for a psychedelic medicine company, and I'm really interested in psychedelic medicine, and I'm concerned about a lot of problems with it, particularly stuff like access, equity, indigenous reciprocity, the integrity with which these medicines are held. But I think what's extremely important and not being spoken about and it's beginning to be spoken about i know you speak about it but these are long healing processes these are really potently destabilizing experiences in many cases and they can occasion in addition to mystical experiences they can occasion spiritual emergencies Uh and we do not have the infrastructure to handle this that's true as a culture we don't have initiatory practices to prepare us for these experiences, nor do we have a village-style community to hold them as we return. I agree. I mean, not only that, we have an extremely egocentric culture. I'm not even saying that in a, a, you know, we don't really have any maps for what's beyond the ego. It's very much a model of of, of separate selves. And so we're now going to have millions of people going beyond their ego with no map or language for the terrain they're going to be in or guides. So I, I, I think that's, going to, that's an issue. We need much better cultural infrastructure for all these people that are going to be getting out of their heads. Well, and I think the symbol for me of perhaps a fragile ego, some trauma, blowing open psychedelic experience and then coming back to an alternate reality, the symbol for that is the QAnon shaman. Not necessarily the particular individual. Jake Angeli. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not him as an individual per se, but the symbol of this, the QAnon shaman. And he, to me, represents this whole wave of conspirituality, which of course has been happening long before the mm. pandemic. But what you've just described about this individualist nation this ego-centered nation, Mm. people blowing open their egos. And then to me, what I see is that they're coming back and they're they're squeezing all of that juicy universal consciousness into the small ego narrative where they then are God. They are creating reality, untethered from consensual reality. Mm -hmm. And at best, that situation is a lot more pain for them. At Mm. worst, it's a lot more pain for everybody else. 
And so this is kind of the landscape that I've been noticing a lot and seeing to varying degrees within my own community, the Burning Man community, psychedelic community, and then looking at psychedelic medicine being injected into society as a whole, being like, holy shit, how do we prepare for this? Because I don't feel like the psychedelic medicine companies really have any idea that this is part of what they're biting off. Yeah. I guess I started tracking conspirituality and writing about it quite soon into the pandemic. I, I wrote a first piece about it in April 2020. So this was like a month after a pandemic had been announced and lockdowns had been introduced. And I, it had not been on my radar before. I'm spiritual but not religious myself. At the time, I was researching a book about Aldous Huxley and kind of celebrating our culture, the spiritual culture, for all its good points, of which there are many. And then in that first month of, of the lockdown, I just uh, noticed people I liked and respected in um, our community, our culture, let's say, just posting really far out stuff like um, David Icke interviews where he's saying the pandemic is, uh, the whole thing's a fraud. That pandemic thing by Mickey Willis that went viral, these kinds of things, a, a Pizzagate type documentary called Out of Shadows, I think it was called. You know, so many people I knew were sharing that. And I, I really thought, what, why is my culture reacting like this? It, it really surprised me. And I guess there had always been like conspirituality as a word was coined in 2011. And so people had noticed the overlap between conspiracy thinking and new age culture for a long time. And in fact, it goes back to at least the 19th century. But I guess I wasn't aware of it until a massive public health crisis like the pandemic, when our actions affect each other, when our attitude towards vaccines affect each other and our attitudes towards uh, medicine affects each other. It, it, so it suddenly became very obvious to me. And I worried that, I, I thought, oh, is, our, is our culture failing this test? Like our culture, we pride ourselves on trying to make the world better, trying to serve humanity, trying to spread love and wisdom. And are we actually making this terrible emergency worse? So I started writing about conspirituality more and it's been a strange, a really strange two years for me. I felt very uh, disenchanted sometimes. I felt close to nihilist at times, closer than I've ever been to almost like atheist, materialist, or even like scientistic, you know, the kind of people that I would mock five years ago. I feel myself closer to them now. You're just very disenchanted with spirituality, which is my culture. I don't know if it's, if it's been like that for you, but, um, and so it's been like, it's felt like letting go of beliefs during this time and then thinking, what's still there? What do I still believe in? What still feels substantial to me? Well, I definitely have had a similar experience during this time and really honing in on what my magical thinking is. And in part from actually reading your work and Jamie Wheel, our mutual friend, has also mm. been helpful for this. Like where can I have better mental hygiene? Because I'm a psychedelic explorer and I extol the virtues of festivals and serendipitous occasions and living into a mythopoetic experience. I think that's really a valuable way to live in a way full of meaning. But wondering what is real insight and what is my ego is hijacking into my personal self-aggrandizing narrative. And 
during this pandemic, to me, in a, in a healthily skeptical way, I've been really honing in on that. But in honing in on that, I've been seeing a widening gap between me and some of my peers where people will be talking about something and I feel like such a curmudgeon being like, none of that is true. How could that be true? Like, where are your critical thinking skills? And then when you have that feeling of like, where are your critical thinking skills? It's so easy to get righteous and judgmental and widen that divide. And that, that polar thinking is what it seems like we're all being funneled towards by the various media that we ingest. Yeah. So it's a really potent place. And now seems as the best time for me personally to have a conversation with you. Mm-hmm. Because I do believe that a spiritual emergence is a real thing. Mm-hmm. I really believe that it's real. I, I know that you've discussed experiencing it. And I have felt that I have been experiencing some version of it. And how do we parse a spiritual emergence that is actually part of a kind of like evolution and development for our individual being that isn't spiritual inflation, narcissism, self-aggrandizement, and ultimately flipping over to the kind of paranoid conspiracy thinking. Right. So I think the best way to start to really get into this is let's start with your story and let's let's talk about spiritual emergence. And then perhaps we can do a good job for those listening who may be having some of these experiences to get to a place where we can say, well, how do we know what is true? And what should we do when right. we experience a kind of psychic destabilization? So let's start with your, my friend, mm-hmm. psychic destabilizations, because I know that you have experienced some throughout your life and sure. that it's been a big part of what has blossomed your own philosophical thinking yeah okay well the short short version is i was a teenager in england and in the early 90s which was kind of uh, rave scene great that like free parties kind of area yeah like free parties particularly was in 89 that was the, the birth of acid house the kind of early 90s you got bands like prodigy underworld orbital chemical brothers so I was going raving at 15, 16, 17, took acid for the first time at 14. But, you know, f- forget about sensible set and setting. I'm talking like mixing three or four different drugs at a, at a kind of techno club with people I didn't really know that well. And I'm not even like 18. Um, so I had some bad trips and dealt with them in a very English way by not talking to anyone about it for years. And... As a result, these bad trips turned into trauma. So by the time I was at university, I was suffering from the symptoms of PTSD, panic attacks, dissociation, derealization. I was a stranger to myself. My emotional life, I've been very happy-go-lucky for the first 18 years of my life, so I had no idea what was going on. And that lasted for about uh, five or six years. So in terms of difficult psychedelic experiences, this was, and I didn't know if that was the rest of my life. I didn't know if that was permanent. When you're 18, 19, you've done lots of drugs, and now you're messed up and having panic attacks, your terror is this, that's it. Along with all your social expectations, like, oh, I've blown it before I've achieved all I meant to achieve, etc. So it was a really scary time. When I was really falling apart inside, but really holding it together outside. So literally, my housemates didn't realize there was anything going on with me. Which that sounds ag- very English. It's super English. There's a quote by John le Carré, the spy writer, who says, the English make good spies because you could be next to your friend and he'll be having a gale force seven nervous breakdown and you'll be none the wiser. So I was like that. 
I looked around a lot for how to try and get help. I, I left university, got my first job as a financial journalist, which is what happens if you mess around with drugs. That was the last thing I wanted to do. I wanted to be a poet or a novelist, but that was the job I got writing about mortgage bonds, which nice. was actually quite interesting. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was during, you know, the dot-com bust and then all of that. Anyway, all the time getting worse and worse social anxiety and, and the rest of it and panic attacks and so on. I then, and to come to your point about spiritual experiences and why I know that they generally genuinely happen to people and can be really healing and helpful is when I was about 24, I had a near death experience. I was skiing in Norway is where my family goes every year. Like my great grandfather built a hut there in the mountains of Norway. And on the first day of this trip, I went through a fence on the side of a mountain and fell, I don't know, 30 feet and broke my leg and my back as in two vertebrae in my back. And the instant I landed, I had a kind of white light experience where I felt filled with love uh, and had this deep sense that I was okay, that there's something in me and in everyone that can't be broken. And of course, PTSD is the deep belief you are broken and you're always going to be broken and therefore you're never going to be loved or be able to get through life. And this was like a total reset of that. It was like, you're fine. There's something in you, the most important bit of you is indestructible and immortal. And not you, just you, Jules, but in all of us. And it also got this, this message at that time that what's causing your suffering is your own beliefs. This experience must have been about a minute or two minutes, because the first thing I remember then is coming back into my body and realizing I'd been in a skiing accident and that I'd broken my leg. And the first thing I tried to do was wiggle my toes to see if I was paralyzed. And I could wiggle my toes, so I realized, great, I'm not paralyzed. All that's happened is I've broken my leg. I'm going to be fine, but I've also had this incredible experience. I knew immediately this was an amazing experience and my life was going to be different. And my uncle skied up and said, oh my God, because my tibia was sticking through my leg. And I tried to say to him, don't worry, everything's great. Again, sounds very English. Oh my God, no, don't worry, everything's great. <laughs> yeah, just a flesh wound. It's just a, it's just a flesh wound. Um, but, uh, and, and then for about three months, I felt high, like um, connected to, to my soul again like having felt estranged from myself for six years, connected to other people again, having felt paranoid and defensive and uptight and just in love with life once again. And then what happened is that epiphany wore off and the old habits of depression and anxiety came back. So I knew that these were mental habits. So what I needed was some kind of systematic way to turn the insights of that epiphany into uh, habits. What, what they say is like to turn the altered state into altered traits. And is, this, is this where stoicism comes yeah. in? Okay. So I, um, I was a bit familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy. I went along to a support group for people who have social anxiety. No therapist there, but we all followed a CBT course. And that really helped me. I stopped having panic attacks, started to understand that Exactly as my epiphany had suggested to me, what was causing my suffering was my beliefs. So what was perpetuating my social anxiety was certain beliefs, like the belief that everyone must like me, and if they don't, it's a catastrophe. 
CBT helped me to examine that belief and see it was bullshit and train myself to think and act differently. When I was doing CBT, I thought this is, this seems very familiar to me. This seems like Stoicism, the ancient Greek philosophy, which I'd read a bit as a teenager. So I went to interview the people who'd invented CBT, two American psychologists, Aaron Beck, who died about a month ago, and Albert Ellis. I did the last ever interview with Ellis before he died in 2007. I interviewed him on his deathbed in New York. And they both told me that they got CBT from Stoicism. To cut the story short, I spent the next few years in my late 20s and early 30s diving into Stoic philosophy, but also into ancient Greek culture and philosophy in general. And I found it amazing, so rich in, in wisdom and in like therapeutic insight. And I started to write about Stoicism. I started to interview people who are into Stoicism today. I noticed there was the beginnings of this wave of a revival of interest in Stoicism. A few people beginning to realize that cognitive therapy, which is like the gold standard of psychotherapy, came from Stoicism, like from an ancient Greek philosophy of 300 BC. Was this prior to when Tim Ferriss started extolling the virtues of no, Seneca and Fer others? Ferriss was a really early adopter. I think it was around the same time. Ryan Holiday was beginning to get into it. He hadn't written anything really on it yet. So... I wrote my first book, Philosophy for Life and Other Dangerous Situations, and came out in 2012. And that was about how people used Stoic philosophy, but also other Greek philosophies today as a way of life. I interviewed like former gangsters, like firemen, astronauts, soldiers. It was probably had a bit of a male slant, particularly Stoicism, but, you know, all kinds of stories. The point was to show that these were people outside of academia following these philosophies. Uh, and ancient philosophy was incredibly helpful still. It still worked. That's the first bit of my story. But to come back to your question, I had this crazy experience. I'd, I'd had very interesting psychedelic experiences as a teenager, some of which were, were genuinely spiritual experiences. And then I'd had this like near-death one. And I, I still to this day don't really understand it. But I knew that it had been very healing for me. And it had given the insights it had given me worked in practice. As in, it gave me this insight, your beliefs are causing your suffering. That turned out to be uh, true. And it turned out there was really good evidence for it. All the evidence for cognitive therapy is based on the same idea that emotions, you know, are caused by your beliefs and you can change your emotions by changing your beliefs. I subsequently, and we'll talk about that later, wondered what that white light was and how can I connect to it more. But just to close that little first part of this story, this epiphany had given me information which worked in practice. So in that sense, I didn't fully know what that light was that I connected to, but the information was helpful and therapeutic to me. So it's interesting, because it was a near-death experience, you didn't have the opportunity to just dip back into the well again and again, which is what is often happening with psychedelic experiences. Mm. So, so for you, you had this white light experience, you had a three months of the afterglow of the connection, which what I would say just listening to it, it feels like a connection with unity consciousness, with the, the divine, however we might understand it. You got about three months of that afterglow, it wears off, and then it guides you to practices. And I think that that's really 
a good way for it to work. For me, like when I had my first few ayahuasca experiences, it was kind of similar. It cleared out some really unhealthy beliefs, really connected me with this kind of oneness, this kind of universal consciousness. But what I did, and what I think so many people do, is I just kept eating at the buffet. I just kept loading up my plate because it was so delicious. Right. You know, and if I could have got to the white light repeatedly, I would have totally abused it. Yeah, so I'm not surprised. Well, and and it's what I mean. It's what I, what we're all kind of doing right now with this kind of spiritual tourism. And Jamie's got a great bit in his most recent book, Recapture the Rapture, about using the Pareto principle as a way of looking at spiritual experiences. Essentially, that like you get eighty percent of the goods from twenty percent of the engagement, and then after that twenty percent, you're actually getting diminishing returns. And so it's an interesting note around the way that we're doing psychedelics and the way that we're doing, the way that we're cultivating transformational experiences, so many of us, and I would be the first to say that this is me, just keeps wanting to come back to the transformational experience to experience that kind of like white light, that connection with source, and, and to try to keep getting to the peak. Right. And, and I think, I, I'm curious how that works with this idea of a spiritual emergency, which mm. leads to spiritual emergence. This might be a nice moment to talk about this. Okay, well, I'll approach it like this. I wrote this book, Philosophy for Life, and it was about the ancient Greek Socratic rational approach to healing, to flourishing. Greek philosophy, all about use your rationality to heal yourself. But I realized at the end of that book that rationality isn't the whole story because what had helped me heal initially was not my rationality. It was this ecstatic experience. So I, in my second book, I wanted to explore what I not the Socratic, but like the Dionysiac, Dionysus, the Greek god of ecstasy. What are ecstatic experiences? How do people find them? And I was also thinking, how can I find that white light experience again? If that was a connection to God, how can I get more God in my life? Because I was a Stoic, and Stoic is very rational, and I was a bit lonely. I felt I'd healed, but I still wanted more. I wanted to connect more to other people, more to my soul, more to God. So I went looking to try and make sense of ecstatic experiences. This was my second book, The Art of Losing Control. Along the way, I like became a Christian for two years and then realized I couldn't really be a Christian. I couldn't f- fulfill the minimum requirements of being a Christian. And researched, I mean, it's such a big topic. I probably bit off more than I can chew. Like ecstatic experiences, there's so many different ways to make sense of them. There's so many different ways to reach them. There was something called the Alistair Hardy Religious Experience Research Center. This was a a former biologist who tried to map all the different types of spiritual experiences people could have. And he tried to classify them, but his classification system went bananas because, you you know, he got accounts of people who'd have spiritual experiences at the dentist or spiritual experiences at childbirth. There's an infinite number of different weird types of spiritual experience people could have. And... The argument of the book, basically, is that spiritual experiences, ecstatic experiences happen to people all the time. They're normal, they're human, that we in Western culture have a weird attitude to them. We're rather afraid of them, we marginalize them, and we often pathologize them. That's because of our history, it's because the history of materialism, the history of psychiatry. So the aim of the book was to say, these experiences happen and they're okay and they're often good for you. However, they're not always immediately good for you. As various psychologists like William James and Stan and Christina Groff have pointed out, 
sometimes spiritual experiences are quasi-psychotic. Now, in the history of psychology and psychiatry, in, from the late 19th century on, the mainstream position of psychiatrists was that ecstatic experiences are always psychotic, that they are just pathological, that if you, ha- if you think you're connected to God or angels or, or the universe, then you're suffering from delusion or hysteria or, or some form of psychosis. So you have a few marginal, brave psychologists like William James, like Stan Groff, who say, no, there's such a thing as spiritual experience. These aren't psychosis. These are, you know, wonderful experiences. These enhance people's capacities. But even they could see that sometimes mystical experiences are messy, that sometimes they do involve quasi-psychotic stuff, like mania, or like overseeing meaning and everything. So you hear a song on the radio and you think, oh, it's about me. Thinking, not just feeling that you're connected to God, but that you alone are God. And maybe no one else even exists. This kind of stuff. You will have seen this kind of stuff in the psychedelic community sometimes. Or say someone who who at a retreat then doesn't sleep for two weeks and they're filled with energy, but it's untethered. So... We're in this messy continuum between the spiritual and the psychotic. And some psychologists have even said that mysticism and psychosis exist on a continuum. That it's very hard to draw an absolutely firm line between the mystical and the psychotic. You know, I actually have an idea about this that kind of like neuroticism and artistic brilliance are sort of like on a kind of continuum. And the distinction around the neurotic and the artist is really whether you create works of art because you could be extraordinarily neurotic and do nothing with it and then if you're creating something brilliant it doesn't matter how neurotic you are right and there's a whole long history of thinking about artists and artistic inspiration which is a form of ecstatic experience but it's also a form of madness so uh, plato said there are three types of divine madness the madness of the lover, the madness of the artist, and the madness of the mystic. Uh, mania comes from the ancient Greek for this kind of divine madness. Aristotle said, you know, there is no genius without a touch of madness. So, I mean, looking back to the Romantics, when the rest of uh, Western culture was saying ecstatic experience is just delusional and stupid and mad, the Romantics said, oh, but there's ecstatic inspiration. What about Blake, you know, seeing angels and, and coming out with this extraordinary stuff? So anyway, you're absolutely right that this is a form of ecstatic experience. Creative inspiration can be both wonderful, but also nuts. So you begin to get in the 70s and 80s, psychologists trying to find a kind of a terminology for experiences which are both spiritual, but also a bit messy and and maybe a bit quasi-psychotic. And it's only in 1980 um, with the Groff's anthology, Spiritual Emergency, that we start to get this concept. They define a spiritual emergency as a spiritual experience or a spiritual emergence, but that's destabilizing and leads to kind of mental or emotional disturbances which last for a few days or weeks or months or longer. And that might involve quasi-psychotic stuff like, well, I've mentioned them already, things like mania, for example. 
You know, this is interesting because for me, so I've had mental health challenges throughout my life. And a huge part of what has allowed me to flourish with these destabilizing experiences mm. is to look at them all as teachers. Ram Das speaks of everything as grist for the mill of the awakening. And I feel like, so my depression comes to teach me and then it goes when it's time to go. And that attitude, I think, can be very healthy. Whatever experience is here, I'm going to be optimistic and I'm going to be positive about it. And that actually, I think, can get you through some storms. But the tricky part of it is it's like, well, at what point is this a spiritual emergence? At what point is this something I need to lean into and feel it to heal it? And at what point is it like, no, no, you need to medicate? Or, and it might not even be medication in the pharmacological sense. Maybe it's like, actually, no, this is a thyroid issue. Like, you got to get that checked out. Or like this is a mercury poisoning issue or whatever. So so many people are suffering right now, mental health issues, just rampant around the world. Yeah. And then we have these psychedelic experiences and people are having destabilizing experiences. So, you know, as a way of kind of teeing up your book, Breaking Open, uh-huh. the question, I guess, is like, how do you know, know. Right. what you're in and how to get through it in the right way instead of you're in something and because you're surrounded by kind of these pithy new age slogans, you're kind of leaning into something that may very well be making a mental health challenge worse. Mm. I mean, it's a rich and complicated and hard question. Like, basically, where am I at the moment? Where am I? Is this good? Is this on the way to growth or am I in trouble? Um, When you were talking, it reminded me of Aldous Huxley, who I've, I've been researching for four or five years now and has been a big inspiration on, uh, uh, to me. And, and you have a forthcoming book on Huxley, yes? Well, I have, I've been working on a project. You know, like It started off as a book about Aldous Huxley and it turned into a book about spiritual eugenics. He, like many others, was uh, a kind of new age figure who was also into eugenics. So I just got obsessed with that. Let, let's bookmark that because bookmark I want to get into that. But I want to. So the quote that um, Huxley was super interesting on trying to take an integral perspective. And he said, the original sin of most theories of human nature and of illness is oversimplification. You only approach the issue from one particular tier and you insist your tier is the only tier. So if you're a CBT person, you only approach suffering from the cognitive tier. If you're a Freudian, you only approach it from the tier of childhood trauma. If you're a you know, biomedical psychiatrist, you only approach it from the the point of view of chemical imbalances. Um, And Huxley said you should approach them from all levels at the same time. And he had that capacity, it was really unique, to think at these multiple levels of the physical. So he was very into like the Alexander technique or Gestalt therapy, even though he was a really gangly intellectual. So he was, he was, he was into things like ecstatic dance even. I mean, I don't know if he, he would talk about the benefits of it. But then he was also into like the intellectual level or the cognitive, the philosophical level. He was into the chemical level as well. He was very interested in things like tranquilizers. He coined the term psychedelics with his friend Humphrey Osmond. And then he's into the, the ecological, the political, the mystical. He did a lecture series at Santa Barbara at the end of the 50s where he tried to take his students to all these different levels for understanding human experience and to basically say, don't just get stuck in one level. And I think the risk with new age culture sometimes is it gets stuck at the mystical, uh, where everything is great, nothing's wrong here, you know, you don't really exist anyway. It's all oneness. 
But there are other things going on as well. So there might be childhood trauma going on, or there might be a physical issue happening as well. Or there might be a cognitive delusion happening. So you might need Socratic skepticism as well. So we need all these levels. Um, so you, there might be a red light flashing at any one of those levels. So you need to be open to all of them. Jules, this is so hot for me right now for a couple of reasons. First of all, my patron saint personally mm. is Odysseus, and particularly Odysseus as described as many-minded. So, you know, in Homeric recitation, they'd always have these adjectives like gray-eyed Athena or rosy-fingered dawn, so you could remember to say it. Uh -huh. So Odysseus is many-minded, and I think many-minded is the most aspirational quality. So I love you describing Aldous Huxley this way. And it's so poignant for me. I've been navigating, let's just call it a disturbance, <laughs> mm -hmm. sparked by a breakup, but woven into all sorts of things. And I've been trying to hit different levels of it. Mm. Been working in functional medicine to see what's going on with my body. Been working with different therapists. Been working with kind of the mystical. And then trying to bring that into this program. Mm. And this is such a poignant moment because I think that this concept of being many-minded, mm. really not expanding our minds to include things that feel patently not true or this kind of woolly, kind of relativistic perspective, but to actually be disciplined in approaching these different layers, that may be one of the avenues out of our own personal kind of stormy seas, but maybe out of this mess that we're in culturally, where people are cleaving to these oversimplified conspiratorial narratives, when it's the false simplification. That's exactly right. I mean, the lure of conspiracy theories is the collapse of complexity into simplistic narratives. White hats, black hats, good, evil, darkness is going to turn to ultimate light. So it's an intolerance for complexity. But I also think, you know, Huxley never said psychedelics are the cure for everything. And all you need is to keep on doing psychedelics. This is what happened in the late 60s. And, and thankfully, he didn't live to see it because I think he'd have been appalled and ashamed of what happened to his kind of great message. He always thought psychedelics was just one way to kind of healing and insight but it, there were you know multiple others and i think when we become a mature society we're at the stage where psychedelics are like the magic beans uh, a bit like prozac was in the 80s oh it's just it's just chemical imbalances but now we've got the rebalancer so uh, i think there's massive amounts of acid hype when we're mature it'll just be one one means among many and yes they can help you but so can joining a choir or, or seeing more of your friends or taking more exercise or being a bit more careful about what you eat. We always do this in wellness culture. We get fixated on one thing. In a way, we're obsessed with trauma at the moment as well. This is the thing. Everything's trauma. And in, in five years, it'll be another thing. The other thing I thought about, is I was thinking about Odysseus this week. I'm, one of the things I'm just working on now is we're trying to start a project to do more research on what helps people to integrate difficult trips. There's no empirical research at the moment for what people find helpful when they've had a difficult trip. What works for them? We don't know yet. So again, talking about upgrading our cultural infrastructure, we're about to launch this program for millions of people to take psychedelics. Who's we? We're calling it the Coming Home Project because my thinking was almost all funding and research is going into like the big experience uh, and none of it is about helping people come back through the door and back into their lives. 
And imagine if NASA spent, you know, like hardly any money on getting astronauts back. When we're talking about coming home, it made me think of Odysseus because Odysseus is whole, you know, the Odyssey is all about coming home and how it takes a lot longer than you think. And all the, all the adventures he has along the way, but it ends with him like coming back a much older man, obviously. So yeah, I just thought of that myth as a myth of, of uh, it's about home, isn't it? And, and trying to get back home. Uh, there's so many threads that I want to go into about Odysseus and coming home and the spiritual journey as kind of like an Odyssean task of coming mm. home to self. I want to do that, but I'm going to be self-disciplined and not mm. do that because <laughs> we have some ground to cover and I want to make sure that our audience is fully caught up in the arc of your experience and how this kind of tees you up to be a bit of a Paul Revere on the conspirituality issue. So what I love here is that you've had these life experiences. There was the art of letting go, which is mm -hmm. this exploration of ecstatic states. That led you to Breaking Open, which you wrote with Tim Reed. Tim Reed, who's a psychiatrist who advises Imperial College's Psychedelics Lab. And what we wanted to do was we wanted to gather together stories of people who'd had spiritual emergencies. And we wanted them to, to, to say in their own words, what was it like? Describe the weird phenomenology of your spiritual emergency. And what do you think triggered it? Short-term, long-term things. And most importantly, what helped? So this was like a crowdsourced wisdom, the first book really to kind of ask people, what was it like and what helped you? And we got 12 chapters, so 12, I think maybe 14. They're really, I mean, I really like this. It was the first book I've ever edited, co-edited with Tim. And I'm really proud of it because I think the contributions are like beautiful. I'm just interested in like these weird experiences these weird tales and these are you know the mind in extremis like the far-flung places we go to on our odysseys like the weird islands we end up on and then comparing them and seeing are there similarities there so one chapter is about the one i wrote is about in our ayahuasca retreat i went on in 2017 to heal the remaining remainder there's always remainder trauma isn't there but to heal the, la the last little remainder of, of the kind of trauma from these bad trips when i was 18 and i thought oh let's go back into a uh, psychedelic land and i'm i'm prepared and trained now for expecting difficult experiences but but that there would be healing the actual retreat was fine the issues came up after the retreat so in the days after I came back from, from this retreat, I went into deep dissociation where I thought I was in a dream or in the afterlife. But I felt I'm not in normal reality. Uh, and so I had to negotiate this and navigate this, which I did with the help of my friends. Like I got back to England and my friends looked out for me when I was in a state when I couldn't tell if I was in a dream or not. Like they helped me to like do things like cross the road because I couldn't tell if the cars were real or not. Like a real inception type experience. So I wrote about that and I get emails from people saying, oh, this is what my weird experience was like. I like people saying like I went to a Vipassana retreat and then I thought I was dead or I thought I was in a dream. So this interests me, like just the way that people's, the phenomenology is often quite similar like we go to weird places, but there are often similar weird like places. A, like a bardo kind of quality to that. Yeah, yeah. It had a total bardo quality, yeah. But the other thing is the parallels in what helps people. So people talk about coming back into their body. 
often like spiritual emergencies, they, it messes with the mind, with the soul body connection. So you can get very dissociated from your body. And coming back into this material reality is really helpful and really grounding. I remember the thing I, I loved most in that liminal week after I came back from the Amazon was like sitting in front of a fire with my brother's dog, just stroking my brother's dog. And that was just a very material, comforting experience. Being with friends is massively comforting. Taking exercise, remembering to eat and sleep properly. Uh, when you're in a very heightened state, you can forget to eat. You can forget to sleep. So these kinds of basic things. Mindfulness practice, like the breath is a really good way to get back into your body. And the frame you take on it, if you take the frame, and this is true of, of any difficult experience, if you take the frame, I'm fucked, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm permanently fucked, that's going to make your consciousness wig out even more. If you take the frame this is going to pass, this is temporary and it will pass, that will help it pass. If you take the frame, welcome, like you talk about when you have depression, like welcome to this temporary visitor, that helps you deal with it. I bet you know the poem by Rumi, The Guest House, right? Mm, beautiful poem. This being human is, is a guest house or like a, a tavern. Every day a new visitor welcome them all whether they're an unruly guest or not so you don't want your depression to arrive but you go welcome depression have a seat even though have you ever seen spirited away yeah this being human is a bathhouse every day a new visitor and you know there's that visitor the really stinky visitor that no one else wants to welcome but the heroine has the courage to welcome that really stinky visitor and it gives her a blessing, a boon as a result. So that's a, a great fairy tale for welcoming the kind of difficult aspects of us, the shadow aspects, and having the courage not to run away. And, and I just want to, in this moment, just bring in the idea of spiritual bypassing, because part of spiritual bypassing is not welcoming in the the chunky, stinky, funky bits, which do have their own special boon. And sometimes the special boon of the of the chunky bits is actually to prevent that spiritual inflation. For me, for example, my depression has absolutely made me humbler, more empathetic. Mm -hmm. I feel like if I didn't have mental health problems with so, all the other extraordinary privileges I've had in my life, I'd kind of, I think I'd probably be a dick, to be honest. Not like a total dick, but like I'd be like kind of a dick. <laughs> and I feel like having like a seasonal visitor, which is seasonal depression, that, that says yeah. it's time to be melancholy and slow and you're going to lose some of your faculties at this time and, and experience that. And there's some recent stuff around mental health as a global state change similar to psychedelics. Mm. And part of why psychedelics, in my opinion, can be so effective with something like depression is in addition to kind of tickling the serotonin 2A receptor and giving you that experience of meaning and salience, it also allows you to kind of code switch between realities more effectively because you're like, oh, I'm tripping. Okay, that's not the only reality. And then you're like, oh, I'm got a pretty hairy depression, but that's not the only reality and I'll be able to shift out of it. So that kind of dexterity and facility between those spaces is something that I think is a real, a real boon. Mm. And this spiritually bypassing thing, you're robbing yourself. It's like if you fly into Burning Man, you've robbed yourself because Burning Man isn't just robot heart for sunrise. Burning Man is like, 
the the getting in and getting stuck in line. It's the awful exodus. I incredibly gritty. <laughs> yeah, well, the grittiness. You know, I have a friend who calls it contrived hardship to expedite bonding. That's what Burning Man is. And if you don't have the hardship, it doesn't expedite the bonding. So if you're just getting flown into party, you might as well be on a yacht somewhere. Yeah. So first of all, when you talked about dexterity, I really like that. And that makes sense to me is the ability to use multiple forms of consciousness, including critical, skeptical consciousness. Yes, yes. And that's so important to have that alongside the mystical perspective. exactly. So like the Socratic and the Dionysiac and that they don't always get along, but that, that uneasy relationship. So being polyphasic, Mm. which is not monophasic, like not just enlightenment rationality, but also not just intuition. You can't just drive through life just on intuition, just on, oh, this feels right. Because our intuition does sometimes mislead us, though sometimes it can be amazing as well. And sometimes it's just indigestion. Yeah. Sometimes it is just a coincidence. So you've got to test it out. I've had many amazing coincidences that didn't really lead anywhere. So that was one thing. Then on on spiritual bypassing, yeah, I think new age culture has uh, a real positivity bias. And I think also the issue is that we can become so fluent in the vocabulary of spirituality but fluency in the vocabulary of spirituality does not necessarily mean adepthood in the actual practices. Do you know what I mean? Oh, you know, you know where this is so poignant is when people talk about shadow work. When like I'm doing shadow That's exactly work. Exactly what You're I like, meant. Yeah, but like, well, what what is shadow? Like, if you really understand it. Like, how exactly yeah. are you working with it? If yeah. you're like, oh, yeah, no, I'm doing some shadow work on Saturday. It's going to be easy. Yeah. Gonna be chill. That's, yeah. It gets so tricky. We're, and we're all so good at talking the talk. You know, we all have all these familiarity with these exotic phrases and so on. Oh, yeah, that's so, that's so monkey mind or whatever. So, so I feel that as well. Like the verbal fluency can outstrip the actual emotional maturity or whatever. And then I, I also resonated with what you said about mental illnesses, what St. Paul called uh, the thorn in the flesh. We don't know what St. Paul meant when he talked about the, I have a thorn in my flesh, but it, he said, you know, this thorn in his flesh, whatever it was, it might've been epilepsy or something or other, kept him kind of honest. And I, I have that too. Like my ego really is drawn to like the glamorous life because I don't know what, I think cause I have Irish relatives and they were like social climbers. So I have this social climber thing. Like I really want to be like in a, my ego wants to be like in, in the kind of glamorous elite life. Oh, I would not know anything about that, Jules. <laughs> and then what happens? I develop social anxiety. And so I think I have a relationship to like my soul or like my guardian angel or whatever. And whenever I get too into like the glamour life, it fucks me up. <laughs> like, uh, you know, in hilarious ways. Uh, I mean, I could tell you stories about when I've, when I've been on the fringes of like glamorous high society in, in, in England and something's gone like hilariously, catastrophically wrong. And I kind of think, oh, that was really embarrassing. And I think, oh, that was my, that was my guardian angel, like just tripping me basically. That's the coyote energy, the trickster. And I actually think that that's one of the antidotes to some of the issues that we have in spiritual communities is to really welcome in coyote and not just our personal coyote, but to the culture itself. It's like that and, and to welcome coyote energy, like you just step in a pile of shit just when yeah. you are feeling at your fanciest and yeah. to look at that moment and say, yes, this too, I, agree. I want, I th- yeah, I want I, this too. And, and I think humor is great for keeping your feet on the ground. And spiritual teachers are often funny, 
But uh, do they laugh at themselves? Like you ever hear like Osho laugh at himself? No. Uh, or Sogyal Rinpoche. So humor, like you can be a funny spiritual teacher, but do they have the capacity to laugh at themselves? Alan Watts, you heard laugh at himself. Ram Das, you heard laugh at himself. Ram Das, you heard him tell stories about someone coming up to him like wide-eyed. Oh, it's the great Ram Das. And then he realizes Ram Das is queuing for a porno cinema. <laughs> you know, and he tells that story. That that shows something in him. That shows an integrity in him, like that he has the capacity to laugh at himself. So that's a good guide if you with spiritual teachers. Do they have the capacity to laugh at themselves, to to be to share their flaws honestly? Because I think someone like Osho, basically, he I don't feel like he did. Like he doesn't have flaws. He's divine. Okay, so we're getting close to this idea of the oversimplification of the light and the dark. And with this understanding of kind of spiritual emergencies as being present, let's get into this idea of conspirituality. So first of all, the pandemic has accelerated everything in terms of this this flipping over from the, the psychedelic optimism into this conspiratorial paranoia. And the pandemic has functioned similarly to psychedelics as a kind of non-specific amplifier of what was already happening. Mm. And so it's really interesting what's been happening in this moment and where the chips are falling with different people. Mm. Because a lot of people have had to spend a lot of time on their own. Mental health issues have flared up. We're getting at-home ketamine treatments at the same time that this is happening. So mm. people are, are getting these kind of opportunities to have this heightened experience. Ayahuasca circles are properly mainstream. Psychedelic medicine is as normalized psychedelic use to the point that our parents are like, oh, maybe I should try some, some mushrooms. There's all this stuff is happening at the same time. Mm. And then we see this like tsunami-like wave of really intense conspiracy thinking mm -hmm. that caught me by surprise. But once I was started reading your work, I started really understanding it. And the thing that really got me that I wanted to kind of set up as our opener is the idea of believing that you are the, the hero of a cosmic drama. Mm -hmm. When we are in a psychedelic state, when we're connecting to that oceanic universal consciousness, that feeling of that white light after your ski accident, when you really feel not only a connection with the divine, but imbued with the divine. Aldous Huxley says that the brain is like a reducing valve of consciousness. I completely believe that. Like I believe that the divine spark is running through all of us. Uh -huh. But what happens often is that that information, that experience gets filtered back into our ego as we snap into our habitual default mode. And in that space we are the hero of a cosmic drama as our personal individual selves. Mm. And what you were writing in your, I think it's your most viral conspirituality article, mm -hmm. the one, I think it's just called Conspirituality, yeah. talking about how this idea that you are the hero of a cosmic drama where you can manifest things and you can create things in the world, when the world starts feeling a lot darker, that flips into the, the hero of a cosmic drama that is instead of being this glorious oneness of all things that's evolving into this beautiful place, turns into this paranoid, dark forces, but you're still a hero because you can fight the dark forces because you're yeah. in the know. This is right. So Francis Yates, who is the most famous um, historian of Western magic, she talks about the two moods that you find in Gnosticism and in magic, which are kind of early progenitors of new age, optimism and, and pessimism. 
The optimistic mood is like we're about to shift to a new age of love, a, a new era, a spiritual era, uh, suffering, misery, vice are going to pass away. And you see this also in romanticism. Isaiah Berlin later talks about the same kind of thing in romanticism. But then the age of love doesn't happen. Everyone's expecting it. Like in, you remember in 20, 2012, I don't know if you're too young but like the harmonic convergence people thought occasionally this happens in in new age culture and in christian culture the apocalypse is coming or the age of love is coming but then why doesn't it come why doesn't it happen uh, and then the euphoria the optimism the kind of uh, ecstatic optimism shifts into pessimism and paranoia the age of love hasn't happened because someone or something is blocking it it's them there's some kind of hidden group who are stopping the age of love from happening. You know, so it goes from this feeling of we are the empowered agents of the cosmos. Everything is connected. Everything is beautiful. Everything is happening just as it should to the paranoid version of that, which is everything is connected, but it's all controlled by them. This is what William James called diabolical mysticism, because it's the same kind of mystical sense of it's all connected. They're all, you know, patterns and signs, but it's the kind of, a demonic version of that. So where the upbeat, happy mystic sees signs everywhere that the universe is love, the uh, paranoid mystic sees signs everywhere that the Illuminati control everything or that the satanic pedophile elite control everything. So there's literally there were videos of the QAnon shaman on his Facebook feed, him driving around Arizona going, oh man, look at that, look at that restaurant sign. That's a pedophile symbol. Seeing signs everywhere. I mean, like, like he was on acid. So yeah, so it's basically paranoid mysticism. You saw this a lot in the 60s. You had hippies saying the age of love is coming. And then when it didn't in the 70s, sliding into paranoia, everyone's a, everyone's a narc. And in fact, there were a lot of narcs in the kind of hippie scene or everything's controlled by um, the CIA or something. So that's a little bit what happened during the pandemic in a big way. This was why QAnon, this weird conspiracy theory, took off in wellness culture and in new age culture. And there are, there are reasons why we shouldn't be surprised that conspiracy theories took off in new age culture during the pandemic. One is that New Age culture, well, I mean, there are lots of reasons. One is that economic. New Age teachers, wellness teachers, we depend on things like retreats for our income flow. So lockdowns blocked wellness influences revenue streams. So that was one reason why uh, wellness influencers were likely to be anti-lockdown. What they also discovered, uh, a lot of like wellness influencers on Instagram is if they used conspiracy theory hashtags, their likes went through the roof during the pandemic. In other words, it was kind of the mood of the times was paranoid and fearful. So if you shared the hashtag like save the children, your likes would go up 10 times. And obviously wellness influencers like that. So some of them got captured by the algorithm, captured by audience feedback. But I mean, another reason is that New age people, wellness people, they've always been into alternative health and alternative medicine and probably not into public health, probably not into vaccines. I mean, I've been reading about new age occultists in like 1900, the people connected to things like the Order of the Golden Dawn. They were anti-vax. 
like it's the same thing a hundred years ago in the, in the kind of a culture, the new age of culture, you had like people into magic and people who are anti-vax and people who are into like whole food diets. They were all in the kind of same mix. So you could guess how new age culture would react when you had a pandemic, when you had public health lockdowns, when you had vaccine mandates, you could guess that new ages would react with like paranoia and horror. And that's exactly how they reacted. Like people like Charles Eisenstein, this is all a totalitarian plot to control us, an evil plot by the, the pedophile elite. So I, I want to rest on Charles Eisenstein for a moment here. So I've had Charles on the podcast right, right after he wrote the Coronation essay, mm -hmm. which was influential to then the movie Plandemic. And at the time, I read that essay and I was like, wow, this is actually really compelling this is really compelling to me and I wanted to interview him. And what was compelling to me was the kind of mythopoetic stance that the, the coronavirus could be an initiation globally mm -hmm. into ding, 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 some new age, right? Mm -hmm. And it was a time for me when you know I'd been in the world of, of plant medicine and festival culture for a while and I had done an Iboga initiation and I was very interested in traditional indigenous initiations as rites of passage for young men. To, to be able to have the responsibility to then be adults in the community. And of course, in reading this essay, I was like, God, could this be an initiation culturally into the kind of community and responsibility that we really need as a society? And I loved it. I loved the essay. And I, I did an interview with Charles. And then I've kind of seen how things have gotten what felt like, and it's exactly what you've described of this flip from the kind of op optimistic mysticism, what had initially felt like this kind of mythopoetic, it's not necessarily true, but it's a narrative that can give you insight in kind of an archetypal Jungian sort of way. If we were to look at this as an initiation or even the beginning of a series of initiations, can we use that sense of meaning to actually make the world a better place? And that was compelling to me. But what yeah. I feel like is it's actually not happening that way. And I'm curious about that flip into the more paranoid conspiracy thinking uh -huh. and what the externalities of that are. Like, why is it so problematic and mm. potentially toxic culturally to have that sort of flip into paranoia? Yeah. So I, I can't speak deeply about Eisenstein because I don't deeply know his work. But... Uh, I read that essay as well, the coronation, the cor coronation essay. What, why not frame any terrible emergency that the species is going through as potentially an initiation? Why not ask, how can we spiritually grow from it? That seems perfectly reasonable. If you got cancer tomorrow, you could frame it as, oh, my body's breaking down. What a, you know, and, and that would be true, but you could also frame it as a, as a spiritual experience. A any, human experience can be approached spiritually and you can ask how can I grow from this how can I learn from this you could approach your breakfast like that you could approach waiting for the bus like that so that that seems fine to me this was a species level emergency it was, it was a hugely important moment it, one of the first times when the entire planet the entire species was facing the same challenge so I think it's it's fine to to approach that as, as potentially initiation here are my two issues that I have with where Eisenstein has gone. The first is myths about a shift from a dark age into an age of love are historically incredibly galvanizing 
and motivating and inspirational, but they get messy if you get messianic about it and expect this apocalypse to happen just instantly. The apocalypse never happens. Humans always expect it to, and great historical changes happen because they do, because they're like, here comes the rapture, but the rapture never happens. History is messy. So the kind of narrative that Eisenstein puts forward, like age of separation, but here comes the age of love, is beautiful and galvanizing, but it's, it never happens because the age of love always turns out to be, to have some kind of messiness to it and then some imperfections to it. You see what I'm saying? So that's the first issue. These myths are really powerful, but don't, but, but maintain the capacity to think on multiple levels. There's the mythical level, but there's also the level of messy complexity. The other issue is, like many deep ecologists, he has a strain of primitivism in him, which is like modern industrial scientific civilization is corrupt and we need to go back to indigenous wisdom. You, you, you know, the video he shared recently, this is a guy saying, don't get vaccinated and he's sharing shamanic wisdom Reject the 21st century medicine, but let's go back to, you know, like uh, pre-modern. So that's, that's a problem. And I have the same problem with Paul Kingsnorth, uh, who's a British writer who was part of the Dark Mountain Project. Is it's, it's collapsarian. It's like bring on the collapse. Uh, and it's primitivist. And it's basically kind of Stone Age thinking. And I, I have, uh, my love and, interest in technology has only grown over the last two years. I think the initiation and the incredible achievement of this pandemic was that we got six vaccines in eight months. That to me is, you know, our species responding to this. Vaccines usually take years. So my, my respect for kind of science and technology has grown during this last two years. I remember I wrote about conspirituality in Glastonbury. Glastonbury is one of the kind of new age hotspots in the UK. And I, I guess over the last, in the last few months, I've noticed that wherever there's a new age hotspot, it's also been a hotspot for conspirituality, like Sedona, uh, Tulum, Byron Bay, Santa Monica, Glastonbury. They've all been like hotspots for out there conspiracy thinking, which reflects badly on us as a culture. Anyway, they held a druidic ritual against vaccines and against the lockdown, uh, where they all gathered on the hill outside Glastonbury and they, they banged their shamanic drums and they all said like, Aho, we, we bow to the sky father and the earth mother. And then they walked through Glastonbury playing kind of pipes and drums to oppose the, the evil vaccines. It was like, I don't know, something out of a Fellini movie. I mean, it was, it was comic. These, these neo-Druids bang their drums against vaccines. And this is a, a strain in New Age culture of irrationalism and primitivism. And, and I guess there's multiple different types of New Age culture. You know, it's also possible to have a strain of New Age culture which is uh, techno-idolatry. You know, I've been reading Robert Anton Wilson uh, just today and our friend Eric Davis's great writing on Robert Anton Wilson and reading his amazing book, Prometheus Uprising. And he was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that no one's going to die by like the year 2000. So I'm sure you come across that in, in the kind of 
Burning Man scene and in the, in, you know, techno idolatry, right? A lot of the people in the psychedelic scene are sure they're not going to die ever. I remember I met someone at Burning Man and he, he was part of the Peter Thiel foundation and he was like yeah i'm pretty sh- i'm sure i'm not going to die and i said what do you want to do with like living forever and he said oh get high explore space so i don't know but i guess personally now i find myself more on that side than on the primitivist side and i think 20 years ago i was much more on the primitivist side as in i hated anything to do with genetics i hated anything to do with technology i was much more about like simple life But now I have a a real respect for science and technology, which is partly a respect for the limits of my knowledge. The gifts I have are like, I can write about philosophy, I can write about that kind of thing, like spiritual wisdom. And there's a place for that. But I'm I'm like rubbish at coding. I'm, I'm rubbish at medicine, like other types of medicine. So like, I I have a, an awareness for, you know, that what we write about and talk about, that can help people. That's important. But it's so not the, the only game in town. Do you know what I mean? Well, and, and so here we come back to many-minded Odysseus. And can we be discerning and access information in different ways? So I'm a huge fan of philosophical razors, as I'm sure you probably are as well. For those listening who are not familiar with razors, they're a, a way of kind of parsing down a philosophical argument by making certain things less likely so you can pursue a certain course of, of intellectual discourse. My favorite razor is Hanlon's razor. And Hanlon's razor posits never ascribe to malice what can be uh, attributed to stupidity. And the idea of mass coordination of humans and let's take aside maybe the idea of lizard people for now. Um, but yeah. the idea of there's a sort of like shadow cabal of leaders that are controlling the world. To me, that level of coordination seems outlandish. Right. Like Brett Weinstein talking about like every public health organization in the world is exaggerating the risks of COVID for some nefarious scheme to control us like that would require the coordination of every public health organization you know in the world well yeah and if you get out of this kind of oversimplistic view of good and evil then it's well that that seems extraordinarily improbable what does seem real to me is that there is corruption there are perverse incentives and there's a lot of problems with say like the pharmaceutical companies like I was on antidepressants in my early 20s, and I know now that pharmaceutical companies were pushing pharmaceutical reps to try to get doctors to prescribe these medicines. But there's a jump to then say that everything is fundamentally governed by a pernicious greed, and that's all. At the time, people really thought that these medicines were actually a a miracle cure for these extremely painful ailments. And they weren't, and there's issues with the rigor of the scientific studies, and there's, you know, late stage capitalism is a bitch in so many ways. But when we get into the conspiracy thinking of the oversimplification, and then especially when you are the heroic mythic figure in opposition to it. And that's the thing that I want to zero in on because I think that's something that's been helpful for me to wake up to over the past two years and helpful, I think, for our listeners. And this has been, as we were saying earlier, this has been a very cleansing experience for me intellectually because I really used to be someone who was like, 
oh, well, I arrived at this Burning Man camp at the same time that someone I hadn't seen in 20 years arrived at this Burning Man camp. So we, so we need to have a love affair now or like, or whatever it is, it's, you know, this symbol and therefore it means this. And I think having good mental hygiene, particularly those of us in the psychedelic world who are accessing these technologies, because I think my intuition is that in other societies in the past or in indigenous communities recently, that accessing these spiritual states had certain guardrails. There were a series of initiations that you got through before you got to ring the bell at the top of the peak. Mm. And, and we don't have that. And Jamie Wheel talks about this a lot. There's all the technologies of ecstasis throughout all of history just available in a medicine cabinet. Like mm. a, a 10-year-old could smoke 5-MeO-DMT. You just put a lighter and a thing. And then we don't have the intellectual rigor personally we don't have the intellectual rigor, and then we don't have the community to then hold that. And so then we're getting into, in, instead of having critical thinking, rigor, and discernment, we're getting into echo chambers where people are getting reinforced for certain kinds of beliefs. Like as you were just saying, wellness influencers on Instagram who are talking about vaccines in a certain way are getting yeah. so many more likes. Yeah. So to me, this is kind of the landscape. And what I'm inviting my listeners to do, our listeners today to do, is to scan their own lives, their own psychedelic experiences, their own meaning-making apparatus, and ask the question, what is deep insight and what is the hijacking of our salience machinery in our brains through the use of a chemical in the wrong set and setting? Mm -hmm. And what is echo chamber confirmation bias and reinforcement? Yeah. And right. so, and the question to you is, is mm. then within that, how do we ascertain what real insight is? Mm. So first point about you arriving at Burning Man. Oh, you hadn't seen this person in 20 years. You've got to have an affair. So this is about reading the signs and coincidences and things like that. I, I've also had crazy coincidences in my life. And this is a big theme in new age culture. You know, you want to write a, a, a best-selling new age book, just to have some variation of the theme. There are no such things as coincidences. That's the kind of topic in Paolo Coelho's The Alchemist and The Celestine Prophecy and, and so on. But sometimes, you know, amazing coincidences do happen. And I personally do sometimes think, oh, is this, is this a light down this path? How do we know? The place I've arrived at in spirituality is hopeful agnosticism. I am sure that there's bigger stuff than we're aware of going on. Higher intelligences, uh, some of them benevolent, that appear in our lives. And I, 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 that's as far as I've got with that weird near-death experience. But it's, it's somewhat beyond our ken. That's the key. That's the key for me right yeah. there. Forgive my interruption. Yeah. But this is, to me, this is the key prophylactic. Mm. Let the mystery be mysterious and don't fold it into your own ego, ego narrative. Mm. So yes, there are coincidences. I believe in bigger forces. I mm. am a meaning-making monkey. There's got to mm. be way cooler shit going on than what's rattling around in my sort of conditioned American yeah. late-stage capitalist mind, for yeah. sure. But when am I folding this into my personal narrative where I'm the hero, with self-aggrandizing? Yes. And versus... Wow, that's amazing. And maybe I will follow that path, but I'm not going to follow that path because it solves all my problems and it means that I'm the hero. I'm going to follow that path because isn't the world an interesting, queer, unusual place? And what happens if I go down this path with this sign? So very interesting. Mm, how interesting. Yeah. But the humility and the humor, I think, are the ways that we. Yeah. And like, you know, 
we form a kind of story about it, a hypothesis. But if you if you get too certain, too sure that your story is totally right and true for everybody and, you know, at all times, then you get, you're in another of what Anton Wilson, Robert Anton Wilson called just another reality tunnel. You think you've burst out in, you were woken up, sorry, wakened up, you've taken the red pill, finally you're awake, but you're in another reality tunnel and then another reality tunnel. So these are just, I mean, I think about theosophy, this, this, have you ever heard of it, theosophy? I've heard the word, but I can't place what it is right now. The Theosophical Society was a kind of foundational New Age movement in the 1870s onwards, and it led to things like Rudolf Steiner and all these kind of things. Mm. But they had such a Baroque spiritual map of all these grades of celestial beings. Do you know what I mean? And and they were so over-certain about it. It just became completely over-bureaucratic, their celestial hierarchy, until Krishnamurti said... You know, he he was meant to be their messiah. Uh, he was picked as the messiah of this movement. And then he said, this is all just nonsense. What a G. He walked away from it. He, <laughs> dissol- he dissolved it. Like they were waiting for him to give his messiah message and he, he dissolved the uh, whole movement. But because it become completely weighed down with its bureaucracy. So, so that's one point. Like, yeah, just don't... Like, yes, there's something, and but we can't know for sure. And even St. Paul, you know, says... In this life, we see through a glass darkly. That's the nature of this reality we're in, that we get glimpses, but uh, we don't get the full picture. So we have to kind of work on these hints and, and suspicions and also very much focus on trying to be a good person in the absence of complete knowledge of what's going on, because we're never going to get complete knowledge of what's going on. And I think in a way, Gnosticism and the New Age lures us with this idea of gnosis, one more ceremony and you'll get a complete map uh, of everything. And I, I think we have to accept that to be human is to not know everything. But we get hints and so on, and we certainly can look at the great wisdom from the past. But this existence is somewhat murky. The, the optics are not, you know, the um, second point is the important thing that you, you emphasized about also be careful when your story is too self-aggrandizing when you're the special one in it. Yes, of course, to some extent, we're, we are the hero of our story, but New Age culture has a hero bias. You know, so often you see people use the hero's journey map. Like, and I even, I, I, I created a meme like to mock it, where instead of this cross the threshold, enter the cave, meet the guardian, I was like, my normal day is like, you know, make some pasta, get into a stupid argument at Twitter. That's my usual day. Like, you don't always have to be like a grand hero. The same thing happens in, in Christian culture. It's very much, you are the cosmic hero. The, the risk is new age culture comes from esotericism and it comes from occultism. Those, that's where it kind of historically emerged from, as in from magic. And esotericism is all about the few. The word esoterical literally means the few. It's the same with occultism. The whole history of our our culture is about being one of these special initiated ones, one of the elite, like different from the stupid masses. What you get also in New Age culture is that gets fused with evolutionary theory. So you get the idea that we, people like us, we're the evolutionary avant-garde. We are evolving into the next phase of spiritual evolution. 
but lots of other people, perhaps most of humanity, they're failing to evolve. So we have to be, this is in a way the original sin of New Age culture is narcissism and elitism, because this was the original sin of magic. Magic and Gnosticism, it was always for the special ones. St. Paul again, I don't know why I'm mentioning him so much. He writes um, a letter to the Corinthians in the New Testament. And the Corinthians were kind of Gnostic Christians. And, he's, and they prided themselves on how many spiritual experiences they had. And the fact that they could speak in tongues and do prophecies and magic healings. And they started to, you know, St. Paul says, some of our brothers and sisters in Corinth have started to think they're better than everyone else. They're more spiritual, more pure, whilst everyone else are morons. Used, um, I don't think he uses that exact word, but idiots. And St. Paul says, you can have as many spiritual experiences as possible, but if you don't have love, then you're just a, a clanging symbol, he says. In other words, you're just making noise. And that is a really important um, lesson for new age culture to remember. Like you can have as many spiritual experiences as, as you like. You can have done DMT. You could have been on 30 Vipassana retreats. You could have gone on a Zogchen retreat with a, the ultimate Lama in Tibet. But, it, you know, the test is, are you kinder? Are you kinder? Are you nicer to the people around you? Are you of service to your culture? So, that's really important for new age culture. You know, if we can if we can save this culture, okay, there you go again, you see? Save the culture. That's hero talk, right? But if we can wake up to our own bullshit, an important part of that is like being aware of our tendency to spiritual narcissism and spiritual elitism. So we had flagged earlier the conversation about Aldous Huxley and the unfortunate issue of eugenics being part of his personal philosophy. Mm -hmm. And I think that here we get to like the darkest part of this. And I wanna and I wanna bring in the recent video that was produced by Aubrey Marcus, the gathering of the tribe, with this idea that there's some special people from maybe an alien faraway place that are coming to kind of save the world. We are the mm. chosen ones. We are the yeah. ones who are woke. We, you know, we've drunk of the magic sacrament and we're and we are fundamentally better. And now we're going to maybe at best initiate everyone else and then they'll get to be better too. Or at worst, we're going to leave them behind because they're not as they didn't, woke as They us. didn't make the phase shift. They, they're not in 5G as yeah. I am. And let's bring this into the idea of eugenics because that's some, when you start talking about eugenics, people are like, oh shit, that's actually really bad. But really, that is kind of where this thinking goes to. Yes. So new age culture emerging, I mean, there are different phases of it, but particularly the first wave of new age culture, to my mind, emerged in the late 19th century, in the occult revival of the late 19th century. And it emerged in response to Darwinism and the apparent triumph of Darwinian materialism, which people didn't find satisfying to their souls. So they looked not to Christianity because they didn't believe in that anymore, but they looked to new spiritual movements like spiritualism, magic or the occult, like theosophy and so on, or like psychical research. And what these new movements did is they incorporated a theory of evolution into their, into their spirituality. They spiritualized evolution. And they basically said, evolution is leading to some kind of glorious future. And humans are evolving into superhumans. So they're very into Nietzsche 
and the idea of the Superman. Um, so evolution isn't random. We're, we're evolving into superhumans. However, only a few of us are. The special, uh, special people like us, we are evolving into superhumans. We are attaining cosmic consciousness. Meanwhile, a lot of other people, maybe some other groups, maybe some other races, are less spiritual. They are not evolving. They are regressive. They are degenerate. So what you find is a lot of New Age figures support eugenics. They support the idea that you should identify the fittest, the smartest, the most spiritual, and they should breed more. People like us, they would think, we should breed more. Meanwhile, the kind of degenerates, they should be managed, perhaps sterilized or the, the extreme even like exterminated. So you'd be amazed the amount of overlap. I was amazed. Like I was just writing about Aldous Huxley. And I was like, oh, he was, a, he was into eugenics. And then I realized not just Aldous Huxley was into spiritual eugenics, but so many figures, Alistair Crowley, Frederick Nietzsche, the head of the theosophical movement, Annie Besant, many figures in, in, in this field called psychical research. When you get then to the human potential movement in the 60s and 70s, you get the same idea. Humans are evolving into superhumans, but not everybody, only us. We're the special ones. We're kind of, we're not even the same species anymore because we are homo superior and they're like not fully human to use an expression of Abraham Maslow's. So you get people like uh, Maslow, the, found, the, the kind of most important psychologist for the human potential movement. And he, he, he says only like 2% of humanity have reached the level of self-actualization and self-transcendence. Most people are piddling around right at the bottom of the pyramid of hierarchy of needs. And in his private writing, he, he writes positively about eugenics. He says some people, you know, they should just be put out of their misery, in effect. Whilst the spiritual aristocracy, they should breed more. You get someone like Osho talking about the need for eugenics. He imagined a kind of all human reproduction being governed by a kind of spiritual elite of meditating scientists who would choose who would reproduce with who. You also get these kind of Baroque theories that the spirits are actually guiding who reproduces with who in order to create superhumans. So Terence McKenna postulates that the higher intelligences are actually guiding our reproductive choices in order to create super beings. This then fuses with psychedelics. You get the idea that psychedelics are in some way the acid test. Are you a superhuman or are you a reject? that psychedelics are the catalyst for human evolution, that they, they have appeared at this certain moment to aid our evolution into super beings. Therefore, if you have a, a really amazing trip, that's a sign that you've passed the acid test. You are part of the new elite, the superhuman. But if you have a bad trip, you failed the acid test. You're on the rubbish heap. You know what I mean? So you can imagine how that kind of frame does not lead to good trips. So yeah, you get a lot of psychedelic hippies in the 60s who were very into kind of fantasy books which talk about the idea of a new species emerging among humans, a new elite. You get this idea in Arthur C. Clarke stories, for example, or Robert Heinlein. 
And hippies love that kind of stuff because they think of themselves, I'm talking about hippies in the 60s, they think of themselves as a new elite. Timothy Leary talks, talks about acid heads as kind of evolutionary mutants. And he says, you are not like them, as in the squares, the normal people. You've got nothing, you've got nothing in common with them. You're like us. Find the others. You're part of this a- elite. I think you find this idea in, you know, Daniel Pinchbeck. He talks about a new species arriving. And guess what? It's people like him, a, a, a burning man. So the last thing I want to say is it is possible to have a theory that humans are evolving into superhumans, which is not elitist. I've just been reading Robert, Ant- I'm pointing at my, uh, my bed because that's why I've been reading it, but I've just been reading Robert Anton Wilson. And he is into this idea of we are evolving into superhumans, but he thinks it, it's something that's going to take all of us. And he knows that it can lead to eugenics and it can lead to nasty elitism. So there are varieties of this kind of worldview. And it is possible to be into the idea that humans are spiritually evolving into something higher, but just without making it elitist or exclusionary or or eugenicist. Yeah, so let's bring this to the Burning Man community, of which I am a part and many of our listeners are a part. This is Life is a Festival. So many conversations about Burning Man as this magical place where we level up. And I think we can think of ourselves as magical people because we are the type of people who go to Burning Man. But I think in reality, there's a lot of privilege that gets us to Burning Man. And a lot of why many of us have magical lives has to do with a lot of different privilege, different moments of privilege. And when I think about access and equity in psychedelic healing, if psychedelics, and I've said this many times on both podcasts because it's something that I care very deeply about, if psychedelics help us level up in various ways, i.e. evolve, maybe not in a kind of a biological sense, but are actually allowing us to kind of bridge certain gaps in terms of personal optimization, and they're accessible only to the wealthy and well-connected, then they actually expand the gap of inequality. And then, those, and then the most shitty part of that is that those folks who've had the special privilege that have gotten them access, not only financial access, but cultural access to those tools of accelerating their businesses and their personal development, then they can look back at the people they've left behind and said, no, no, the reason I'm here is because I'm special. And we're special. We're part of the special people. When... I don't, the reason that I'm where I am is privilege. The ability to go to Burning Man and meet people and then work with people. That's where I think that there's such a shitty disconnect here is we're special. We go to Burning Man and we drink yeah. ayahuasca. But it's like, well, you have certain privilege that got you there right, and certain right, luck right. that got you there. So we, we, I think we can hide our class privilege under clouds of incense and say, Oh, you know, like we're 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 not a kind of an economic uh, elite. We're a spiritual elite. We're we're we're, we're essentially better. And this is why I can map to eugenics because you got a lot of new age people who think of themselves as like an aristocracy of the spirit, which is a phrase of Nietzsche's oligarchs of the spirit, but like biologically better, spiritually better. So so yeah, I mean, I remember I went to a an online party of of, of with some people I went to Burning Man with. Uh, during the pandemic, during the lockdown. And uh, this nice guy, but he, he was the compare for it. And he said, don't worry, because we're, we're going to make it through this. Because, you know, we made it through Burning Man. And we're, we're like, you know, in other words, we, we got this. It had that kind of survivalist prepper kind of thing of, of burners. We're going to be, we're going to still survive. You know what I mean? Like there's going to be an apocalypse, but we're, we're going to be saved. 
And I remember another person talking about right at the start of the pandemic saying, you know, humanity is going through a phase shift now. So the question is, can you step up or are you going to be left behind? Again, in this apocalyptic sense of like, there is a dividing happening now. Well, and Jules, I want to say that like, I was feeling that way. Mm. I didn't think it through to what it meant in terms of leaving people behind. Mm. I I was really like reading Eisenstein's essay. I was like, okay, this can be an initiation in the same way that my depression has been an initiation, in the same way that I've actually done psychedelic initiations, and I can step up. But what I wasn't looking at is what do we say of people who can't step up? And I saw someone posting about like this. Uh, it was a response to Biden. Um, and others saying this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And someone posted, this is a pandemic of the obese and posted like a series of obese people in ICUs. And it seemed to be like the meanest thing to like post photos of these people. Right. And in a sense, like blaming people for their obesity. When you look at the way like market forces affect people's bodies yeah. and like the cost of a Big Mac it compares to like, getting healthy organic yeah. food and people who are working night shifts and not able to exercise. And there's like all of the class privilege that's part of the entire wellness perspective. Yeah. And then you put that in like, it's time to step up. It's time to like exercise yeah, more. Yeah, yeah. It's time to like do all this stuff. Well, who has the privilege to do that? Who has you're the right. privilege to eat that food? You're right, you're right. But I guess when I read Charles Eisenstein now, you know, the kind of paranoia, I, I don't like that. But he has a point about the scapegoating of the unvaccinated now. And there's also my friends who are like the most pro-lockdown and the most kind of shaming of people who haven't obeyed the rules. That's also a class privilege because they're people who can work from home easy. That's a great point. You know, in Costa Rica, they couldn't have a lockdown. They couldn't afford a lockdown because like, what do you mean work from home? So... I also see that now, and I felt that in myself big time. I, I really felt emotional animus against pe people who are unvaccinated and spiritual people. I, I've almost fallen out with friends of mine over like vaccines and stuff. And I just thought, you know, this, this hippies. But, you know, that's my that's me scapegoating. That's me saying, oh, you're the unclean. Mm. And, and I think Eisenstein is, is right about that. So I don't buy into his global conspiracy that this is all a kind of totalitarian thing to control us but i do think that there's a nasty moment here and i hope it passes soon as the illness becomes endemic so that there's no point us keep on getting vaccinated because it's just endemic then we can get over this and and heal the divisions that have grown up within spiritual culture because there's so much good stuff in spiritual culture and it's just not great on in a public health crisis, surprise. But there's so much good stuff. So so I look forward to that, the healing of these divisions. And I'm aware of my own tendency at the moment to sometimes like knee-jerk dislike people for not being vaccinated, which includes several, lots of my spiritual friends. So I look forward to us getting over this and not talking about vaccines anymore because this illness will be endemic. I'm so glad that you brought that in in our kind of penultimate moment of this conversation because there's one more thing I want to hit before mm. we close. But I really appreciate you bringing that up, especially because there may be people listening who are like seeing like the dividing lines and being like, okay, th these two guys are 
got some good points, but ultimately they're they're kind of in the sort of like righteous pro-vaccine camp. And I've struggled with whether to speak openly about it. And I recently posted on Instagram a link to Sam Harris's bit that he did with a epidemiologist from Yale whose name I can't recall at the moment because it was a very compelling um, argument for vaccination. And I personally, I'm pro-vax and I, I feel like I am grateful to be vaccinated. I'm grateful that there are vaccines. I feel like it means Mm. less people are dying. And I think that there are at least tens of thousands of people, if not more, who have died because of choosing not to be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really horrible and dark and sad. And at the same time, any kind of like us, them righteousness is part of the same problem. It's part of the same kind of tribalistic arrogance. And so I try to avoid the arrogance of like, I'm right and you should think how I think. And instead try to provide information that's helpful and at the same time lead with love and go slow and be like, yeah, the world's just a complex place with complex perspectives. And thank God it's not on me to run a national vaccination campaign because Lord knows I don't think I'd be good at that at all. But I, I want to just really uh, appreciate you and offering that self-awareness around your own reactivity in relationship to vaccination. And I've felt that in myself too and trying mm. to have that awareness. So I want to want to applaud that. And then for the final, our, our closing of this conversation, which I'm just so happy that we've gone to so many different corners mm. here today and such lovely historical pieces. And mm. um, So this podcast is called mm. Life is a Festival. Mm. And the idea is that we go to Burning Man or other kind of peak experiences and our hearts are blown open with love. We feel more connected to each other. We're living in this experimental yes kind of way, and it feels so good. And then there's an inevitable contraction that mm. comes back, mm. similar to when that white light glow kind of dissipated. And the question for this podcast is, how do we make life a festival? Mm. Not exactly a festival in the sense that festivals, by their very nature, are annual and iteratives, and, mm-hmm. and they move around and but how do we bring these peak experiences to our daily lives? And what I've been thinking a lot about in the context of the topics that we're covering is how do we have good critical thinking skills and intellectual discernment to bring these peak experiences into our daily lives with humility, compassion, a sense of real communal responsibility, mm. but that also has that elevated open-hearted place. So I'm curious if mm. as a place to close today with all the research you've done, with your own experiences, with your own beliefs on the subject, how can we make our lives more like a festival knowing that there are ways we try to make our lives like a festival, certain utopic clustering that actually really causes more harm and creates these kind of spiritually narcissistic pockets of echo chambering. What's the, what is the way to avoid that and really make life still more like a festival in spite mm. of all of, of its ups and downs and confusing yeah. alleyways? <laughs> yeah. My second book, The Art of Losing Control, was it was called The Festival of Ecstasy and it had a map at the beginning, like with di- each chapter was a different zone of the festival. Oh, I love that. Yeah, so, I, need, I haven't read that, and I, I really right, need well, to. You, read it. you would enjoy it, yeah. So it had the rock and roll tent and uh, the psychedelic tantric love tent and stuff like that. So it, it thought of it like that. I have to say that book was subtitled "A Philosopher's Search for the Ecstatic," and I looked at all the different ways to ecstatic experience. And by the end, I didn't want. I really didn't mind if I never had another ecstatic experience again. I realized that these things kind of happen naturally and I didn't need to strive for them anymore. 
And the, the certain relationship I had to the ecstatic uh, in my spiritual life was I would get, I would have a kind of peak experience of some sort. I would feel flooded with meaning for a few months, like I had a rocket pack. Uh, and then the rocket, the, the gas would run out and I would drift down back. And then I feel like a bit bored and a bit depressed and things. Uh, and so I go, oh, what's next then? Or maybe I'll, you know, shall I become a Christian or shall I, um, shall I go and do ayahuasca or something like that? And I, I'm, I think I'm maybe, I'm not sure. I think I'm to some extent out of that cycle now. I, I, I less, you know, highs, highs and lows. Uh, and part of that is I, I'm less like looking for the ecstatic any, anymore. So, so I feel like, yeah, because I think that's, that's something historical that comes from Christianity as well, like in Judaism. If you read the Psalms, it's that kind of bipolarness. Like it's either, you know, King David in the Psalms is either going, Lord, you are here for me. My heart is in song. This is so wonderful. Or he's going, Lord, why aren't you here? It's those two moods. And it's the same in romanticism, either like flooded with meaning or like melancholy. So our, our culture has that bipolarity in its spirituality and new age cultures like that too. So we can have a, a in this similar about wariness for the heroic, we can have a love of the everyday, a love of the quotidian, like just the kind of little things like there's, there's a, a quote, like I used to want to change the world. Now I just, I'm happy if I can just leave the room with dignity. You know, I used to want to save the world. Now, if I can like just my my ambitions have become humbler. Like if I could become a slightly better surfer or like to help some people who have bad trips or something like that, rather than saving the world. So it's the, the everyday quotidian little things we do that might help a few people. Yeah, I, I guess I, I don't believe in kind of grand changes now, though I do see that belief in grand narratives does drive historical change. Is that... Helpful. <laughs> <laughs> you said it like you think it might not be. Well, you, well I don't know. Like, like, yeah. How can we make life more like a festival? But it it makes me miss festivals. <laughs> it makes me think it's been a long time since I've been to one. I, I just want to say, for me, a big part of it, like, is dharma, and not the kind of like egoic, I'm a hero dharma, but like the steady work of doing something that's helpful. That's been good. Like this podcast for me is really good. It really, really helps me live to have this podcast because mm. I show up and we have a great conversation and I offer it to an audience versus, you know, like when's the next ceremony, when's the next peak experience. Now, granted, I do podcast a lot about peak experiences and I go and have them and then podcast about them. But I think that there's a different degree of, I feel like the sense of an open-hearted connectedness of a festival we might as well be having a really deep conversation at like the tea tent at like four in the morning right now because that's <laughs> the level of openness that we're trying to cultivate. Mm. So as cliche and prosaic as it may sound, it is the little things in mm. a sense. And it's the things connected to creative flow and dharma that to me like even out those grand oscillations from peaks to valley. That's Yeah, I agree with that. I got three things to end with. One is a, an anecdote. I went to a spiritualist reading, but with a medium as a journalist to write about it. So there's something called the Spiritualist Association of Great Britain. And you can go along on Monday evenings, you pay a fiver, and this person con communicates with the spirits. And I went along just to kind of write about it. And she said, do you, I was sitting at the back hiding. And she said, do you want me to con contact your 
you know, you want me to do a reading for you? And I was like, no, I mean, I found it awkward to talk to my relatives when they're alive, let alone when they're dead. <laughs> but she, um, she said, I'm, I'm here with your grandmother. And she says, um, why are you so serious? You used to be so much fun. You should go to some festivals. <laughs> so I got a message from beyond the grave saying to go to more festivals. I don't know if that was genuinely my grandma. Well, you should go to a festival and see, you know, follow the signs. <laughs> yeah, I should. And look, here are two quotes that um, I thought of. One is from Epictetus. When you're alone, you should call this condition tranquility and freedom and think of yourself like the gods. And when you are with many, you shouldn't call it a crowd or trouble or uneasiness, but festival and contentedly accept it. And here's one from St. Augustine. In the house of God... There is never-ending festival. The angel choir makes eternal holiday. The presence of God's face gives joy that never fails. Wow. I usually track the festival quotes, but I didn't know there was that juicy St. Augustine there one. There you go. Maybe my, my, my slight resistance to Christianity might have kept that <laughs> off my roadmap. To land today, I think that what's really important is that we're having the types of conversations that people can tune into and they can become aware of something that they're not necessarily yet aware. I mean, I've definitely found that in reading your work. I've definitely found over the past two years with everything that's happening, like I've become personally more discerning and I've been able to look at my life with less magical thinking and less hero's journeys. And it's been helpful to me because it's allowing yeah. me to get clearer on what's not working instead of just lurching from the peak to the valley, which may you know just be my own oscillating mental health and actually look at like, okay, what are the daily practices that make my life actually better? Yeah, I think it, it, a lot of the time it's a balancing act. And we as a culture, spirituality has gone through a difficult two years. And in a way, there's this whole movement of critical spirituality now, which is great. And things like the Conspirituality podcast and people calling out some of the bullshit in our culture. There are whole Instagram accounts, which all they do is call out spiritual bullshit and they're extremely popular. So this is great. But the risk of that is it, it ends up just in hypercriticism or in, in nihilism. You end up, you know, in the kind of the hermeneutics of, of suspicion and, and nihilism. So I, I, I guess I, what I'm trying to do is, is balance the critical with the hopeful, with the optimistic with the mystical as well. So, yeah. Well, and I think that balancing comes from the many-minded approach. Yeah. Eric Davis, when we did the podcast together, he talked about how you need to have a whole superhero crew inside your psyche. You need a shaman there. You need a shaman in your psyche who will see all the signs. But you also need a skeptic to be like, whoa, whoa, maybe not so fast. And I think that it is cultivating a many-minded approach. Mm. Yes, there is a spiritual emergence happening. And I should be drinking more water and I need to get my mercury levels checked because I think I actually have high mercury, which might be contributing to like the intensity of these fluctuations. Mm. It's all sorts of things. Mm. And, and I think maybe the invitation to the audience is to check out the different tiers by which one could approach reality. And I don't know if there's a helpful list of them, but perhaps you can just consider them, whether mm. the biological to the mystical. Maybe check out those tiers and look at the one... Or the, or, the, or the couple that you don't really tune into as that's much. Interesting. And maybe that's the place to build some proficiency in literacy. If you don't know much about neurobiology, 
and you're dealing with something that feels a lot like some kind of polarity in your system, then maybe there's some pop science books to start getting acquainted with some of those materials. And perhaps we can all level up our many-mindedness. And I mean all of us, not the select few that get to pass through the gate. All of us can level up our many-mindedness and be able to show up in service to each other and in a way that helps us as an entire species to level Mm. up together. Yeah, that that is very nice. Yeah, I was going to say something about Odysseus slaying the Cyclops and avoiding like single vision. But okay, no, we I can do that, that too. I think that's, that's a bit yeah, too neat. Yeah, yeah, it's, a bit, it's a bit glib. So I like what you said better. Okay. Well, Jules, it's been so fun to have this conversation with you. You're one of the people who I've been wanting to talk to for a while. In terms of, I get a lot out of your writing, and so to just have a free two hours to really just ask you whatever I want is awesome. Yeah. And it's so nice to meet you. Likewise, it's a pleasure. I'm starved of conversation here in this uh, in this sleepy village where I've been living. So uh, what a treat. Yeah. Thank you very much for, for coming here. And I really enjoyed it. And and we'll have links to everything in the show notes. I, I of course, will we'll link to the books that you've written, which we've mentioned on the show, also to your Medium account, which is a great place to read some of your material. Is there anywhere else you'd like to point people to? Your Twitter's great, by the way. I've been, <laughs> I, I'll, I retweet you from time to time, although I'm not that active on Twitter. So a link to your Twitter. Anywhere else that we want to send I our mean, listeners? I've got a newsletter, which you can sign up for at philosophyforlife.org. If you're into like the history of ideas, I do a course with Rebel Wisdom. It's you know you can it's pre-recorded. I'm doing a history of ideas course. I started with the Upanishads. They're going to go up. To, it's going to take me about five or six years, but I do them every month. So you can find information about that on my website. Yeah, lots of kind of history of philosophy sessions I do on on Zoom. Cool. Well. Look forward to checking those out because I wasn't aware that you were doing that. And keep writing interesting stuff for us. We are all grateful. Thank you, Eamon. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you like the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival. And I'll see you on the dance floor.